My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is recorded live in San Francisco and produced in collaboration with Dave Clark at Studio Pod Media. Our show coordinator is Deanna Marinci, with additional editing and music presented by Notalab. This episode of Technically Speaking is sponsored by Automatic, the people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Automatic's 1,400 people hail from 79 countries and speak 99 languages. Their open source software products democratize publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it and anyone with a product can sell it, regardless of income, gender, politics, language, or country. More than 1 billion people use Automatic products every month. Automatic also contributes directly to WordPress, the open source project that powers over 40% of websites on the internet. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check out the latest job listings today. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. Hey, everybody. My name is Harrison Wheeler. You are tuning into another episode of Technically Speaking. And today I have Asta Gar, who is a UX director at Google. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Harrison. And you said my name perfectly. Yes, yes. Glad we got that out the way. So if you could maybe give folks a quick pitch about yourself. Sure thing. So I'm a UX director at Google, like you said. I'm currently working on Google support. It's a super exciting role. We're designing experiences for support across all of Google. So, you know, whether someone presses the panic button in their Waymo car or someone's ad is not running or, you know, they have someone's video on YouTube is not being monetized. Pretty much our team is helping them solve all of those problems. So it's a pretty, pretty exciting thing to do. and get to work with some amazing people. So having a lot of fun in this role currently. Yeah. And that seems like a really broad reach and and wide breadth. How many folks does your team support? Like, I know it's not like a one-to-one thing, right? But just maybe walk us through like the scale of that. Yes. The scale is huge. Support is the second most visited surface at Google. The first one is google.com. So you can imagine just the scale of that, right? We pretty much do all of Google except for cloud. And that's because cloud just has like a different enterprise thing going on. The team is about 50 UXers as of now. Um, and, you know, it just has to be that way because people don't see Google products as separate product lines. So even though Google is divided into product areas, no one really sees maps as separate from a Pixel phone. So that's why support is all consolidated into one team, because when someone comes to us for support, they're coming to Google for support. So we cannot really have support separately for YouTube and separately for Waymo and separately for all of these other things, right? So that's the challenge. It's definitely the scale is one of the most exciting things about this role, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and also. I would love to maybe learn about scale in terms of impact that you have. So when it comes to like your role, we've had a number of folks across different industries at different sort of levels in terms of the IC track. We've also had different managers. What exactly is the role that you play as a director? 
That's a great question. It's I really think about it in four different categories. So let me just talk about that first. It really comes down to the first category being product strategy. So really, really leading product strategy from a UX point of view, like really advocating for the user and making sure that that's in there. The second pillar is execution. So ensuring excellent execution, having a really high bar for execution. The third pillar being operational. So making sure that the operations within the team are as smooth as possible so that our designers, researchers, writers can do their best job as much as possible. And then the fourth one being cultural, which includes things around diversity in hiring, making sure we're creating a great culture on the team and creating a team where people are proud and excited to be on that team. So these are the four different categories that I think is any UX leader's job. But as a director, the special layer that gets added on top is that I'm one more function or one more step removed from a lot of the ICs. So it's about how do we scale the good practices? How do I make sure that the results is something that I have in mind, but I create space for the managers under me to do things how they want to do it? How do we create consistency in areas that where it there needs to be consistency, but also allow for flexibility because, you know, there are so many different teams and support and so many different locations. Even we have teams right. in Mountain View, Hyderabad, Irvine. How do you how do you make sure that the right things happen at scale? So really, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then also, too, I'm curious to understand, like, what is your approach, right? Because you're not managing ICs anymore. You're managing managers. And so kind of how how have you approached that work and maybe how has that changed your style of leadership? That's a really good question. I first started managing managers a couple of years ago. It is very different from managing ICs. It's almost like, you know, how you become a manager first and it feels like a big step function change. It's similar. Hmm. It's, it feels like as much of a change going from IC to manager as it does from manager of ICs to manager of managers. Because right. now you need to proactively scale your techniques and proactively not micromanage your managers, create space for them to succeed and do things their way. And at this point, I'm managing managers who are managing managers. So wow. it's <laughs> you're like that many more levels in there. Yeah. How I really approach it is have a very clear sense of what is the product strategy. And it cannot be like five different things. It has to be maybe one, two things. Sure. Very clear sense of what is the team strategy and then let people run with it. Because there's only, you have to set the vision or I have to set the vision at my level, but I do not really micromanage or think about or go deep into exactly how to operationalize it because every team is very different. Right. So how long did it take you to to learn this? Right. Um, at what point were you like, you know what, I need to kind of let this go, because I'd imagine similar to that transition from IC to management. Really, one of the things that I've I've noticed is at least for designers that I have transitioning to manager roles is really saying no. <laughs> right. And, and delegating and empowering other folks. So how long did it take you to kind of get there? And, and maybe what was the pain that you felt before you were like, all right, you know what? I need to change my approach to this. It is so emotional. So what I did was, and this is something that I often do, 
whenever I'm about to do something that is new and something I have never done before, I will go talk to a few people who I think are really good at that skill and ask them what were their pitfalls and what were some mistakes that they made. And then I'll try and not make the same mistakes and try and learn from other people's mistakes. So I did my rounds before I started managing managers and people gave me such great advice, like create space for your managers, don't micromanage, you know, give away your toys, all of that. So intellectually, I understood that. Mm. Emotionally, it was really hard, especially because how I manage is my approach is very individualized. So what was happening now was there were people on the team that I was very close with and cared deeply about, but I had to actively step away from caring so much. I mean, that sounds wrong. Obviously, I still cared about them, but I had to stop doing my weekly one-on-ones with them because I needed to create space for their manager to do it as an example, right? So emotionally, that was hard because it was a big change in how I was approaching my work. Now, how long did it take for me to be okay with it? Honestly, that came kind of fast because I could very easily see the benefits and how I was able to scale myself because of that. And also because all these managers were awesome and they were doing such a good job and they were doing a better job than I was. And I kind of felt like, dang, I should have. I should have made you a manager way before <laughs> I actually did. <laughs> so, so that transition happened faster. I feel like it was more turmoil in my head for right. a little bit. But then when it actually happened, it was pretty instantaneous because they were doing such a great job that it right. was a pretty easy transition for everyone. Right, right. And I, I'd imagine too, just kind of if you can reflect on that, it probably allowed you to focus on other things that you totally didn't have the bandwidth for before. Absolutely. That was why I liked it so much because suddenly I realized that I had all this time and it's not just time, it's also distance. Distance from something helps you see a larger picture, right? Mm. So now because I wasn't looking at the work being done on a weekly basis, I wasn't reviewing things on a weekly basis, I wasn't like approving all the launches going out. It was really good to take a step back and really ask, why are we doing things this way? Because when you're too close, you have all the excuses in your head, right? You have all the historical baggage of this is why and this condition and, you know, this limitation. But when you take a step back, you're kind of able to just also take a step back from the limitations, which allows you to think more strategically and more about the future and just think bigger. So, yes, that was something that I felt right away. As soon as I took that step back, that was, it gives you that freedom. So I want the audience to understand and also give context. You just had a promotion, so we'll definitely recognize that. Also, you've Thank been you. at, you've been at Google for close to eight years, right? Is that good on time? Almost nine years. Almost nine, nine years. years. In September. Yes. Wow! Wow! So approaching a decade, and so I'd, I'd really love maybe if there's an opportunity to kind of maybe debunk some of that. So Google's a well-established company. You know, there's a ton of layers. And as we start to kind of think about like what leadership is and, and you know, shaping what that vision looks like, has it been sort of like an entrepreneurial kind of experience for you? Like how much is like set in stone versus how much you're able to create an impact, right? Because Google is by far probably one of the top three well-known brands in the world, right? It is kind of like that entry or gateway into the internet. And so I think when people think about such an established company, I think it's sort of maybe this is the way that things are set. So how much influence do you have as a design leader in terms of shaping 
how the organization operates and, and obviously kind of what that roadmap might look like? That is such a good question. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I was in a clubhouse room and one of the speakers, they were talking about their experience at Google and I didn't want to like speak up and, you know, because they were being interviewed. So I didn't want to be like, well, no, my experience is different. But on the inside, I was like, oh, it's not the same for everyone. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. So the answer to anything at Google, because it's so big and it's so decentralized and so bottoms up is that it depends. Like pretty much any question, right? If you are in search and you're on the core search team, you're probably, I mean, I don't, I'm not super familiar with exactly the projects happening on search, but you're probably not really building anything from scratch, right? The team that I joined nine years ago, it wasn't even, it didn't even have a name back then. I was the first UXer to be hired in Los Angeles in Google, and I was working on Google ads. So that existed. Then me and an engineer and a product manager, we kind of recognized that there was this special space in advertising, the planning stage of advertising, where large advertisers are planning how they're going to run their campaigns, where we didn't really offer them any solutions. And that's that seemed to make sense at that point, because typically it's too early in the game for any one company to offer them any solutions, right? Because that's when they're making decisions between how much do I spend on Google and versus Facebook versus TV versus YouTube and those decisions. So back then, nothing existed. So we did many, many rounds of research to really understand exactly what's going on, identify a market opportunity, pitched it, and built a team down in Los Angeles. So till very recently, before I switched to support, which was, it's been more year and a half, I was leading the planning team, which grew from 15 people cross-functionally to about like 300 people now wow. in eight years or so. Yes. And we built all these products that did not exist before. Right. Like that was completely zero to one. There was nothing in that space. And we built these products. We did one round, built them internally. They were useful. Then we did another round and built them externally. And they're very successful products externally now. And, you know, now Facebook has them and everyone has them because the market has changed now too. So that was my experience on planning within ads. So even though ads itself is very established, I had this opportunity to really do something from zero to one. Now support is not zero to one. It's probably more going to be hopefully 10 to 100, when I, you know, whenever I'm looking back at it. Um, so that's what I mean by it depends. It really depends on which team you join, what are the opportunities. And there's so much room for innovation still if that's the kind of person you are and you have right time, right place. Yeah, thank you for answering that. And on top of this, so I love that you were able to kind of take me through sort of these different experiences and different teams that you work with at Google. Like, I would love to maybe take a step back further. Like, how did you get into design? Like, what is sort of the the origin story of Asta and and really what motivated you to get into design, but more specifically management? Such a great question. I love all of your questions. They're, they're you know, making me think. I love it. <laughs> so uh, when I was in high school, I'm going to go all the way back, but try and do this quickly. In India, most people by default study engineering. That's just what you do. Or you become a doctor, right? It's one or the two. So everyone thought that I was going to become an engineer because I was good at math and like physics. And, you know, I realized that I did not like chemistry at all. So I figured out that I did not want to study chemistry further. So what can I do that does not require me to study chemistry? 
So architecture was one field that came up and I was like, okay, I can become an architect because then it's kind of creative and, you know, I don't have to study chemistry that much. It's okay. And physics and math, I can get by. I started doing that. And that's when I learned more about industrial design, just by talking to some architects. And I had no idea that was a field back then. I learned more about it. So as I started learning more, I got very interested in industrial design as a field. And that's what I studied during my bachelor's. So I was going to become an industrial designer. I was interning at Ford in India and just had this moment of, I don't want to design something that needs to last for like two decades because it just didn't feel right. There was something about the permanence of that that just felt wrong. So at that point, I thought I wanted to study graphic design instead because, oh, it's so, you know, changing. Yeah, you just do it. You just do it. And then then it's done. So uh, I applied to grad schools, came to America, studied graphic design at a very traditional art school, CalArts. I thought I was going to become a print designer, started working at this small design firm called Distinct. They only worked for nonprofits. So it was a very Mm -hmm. small, lean team. And, you know, I realized that no matter how how well we do their branding and their annual report and their marketing campaigns. If people came to the website to donate money and they couldn't donate money, then it didn't matter at all. So I asked my boss, I said, can we pitch to them that we should redesign their website? And he was like, do you know how to do that? And I was like, no, <laughs> but I can figure it out. <laughs> so that's really, this is like years ago, right? UX design yeah. was real back then. So that's really how I got into UX design. And how I got into management is that I just became the lead of web design back then at mm. Distinct, where it started to work. Donations started to go up and we pitched it to other clients. And it seems like I could really take my skills from industrial design and graphic design and put them together and figure this out. In UX design was becoming a field at this point. So I did whatever I could to learn, whatever I could, and just built a team around this. And eventually I started... When I left, I was managing a team of about 20 people and they were designers and developers and different people on the team. So I don't know what I was doing back then, but I got into management just because I needed people to do this at scale. And we had tried it with one company. It had worked. So it was just like, okay, let's do it with other clients now. Yeah. So so just kind of looking back, like what are some of the big themes that, that stand out to you? I think it's all been about... My personal philosophy, and I know that this is, it might sound like, okay, it's easy for me to say that now, but truly, my personal philosophy is to not really optimize for the future. It's really to optimize for my day-to-day happiness in terms Mm. of my career. Like I am going to take a job based on what's going to make me happy tomorrow, not five years from now, because who even knows if I'll be here like five years from now, right? Like who knows what's going to happen in the future? So. All the decisions that I've made so far have been about what do I want to do right now? What's going to make me happy? And I would do whatever I was doing that would make me happy. And I would spot a problem and try to solve the problem. Like Mm. I was just designing their annual reports because that was making me happy. And then I was like, hey, this doesn't matter because people are going to the website, but then dropping off. I could look at the traffic and figure out the bounce rate, right? Right. And then it was like, okay, let's just solve this problem. Let's see what happens. Now the problem is we need to do this at scale. How do we do this? Let's hire more people. Let's make it happen. So it's really been those two themes. One, picking things that make you happy day to day. And second, when you see a problem, solve that problem. Yeah. I always kind of look back a little bit. And I remember I was doing kind of the same things 
I think at one point it was just like building a website that functioned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think when you start thinking about like, oh, what is the goal that like totally opened up a whole new world and way of thinking, right? Because yeah, you, you say bounce rate. I was like, oh, you were so using Google Analytics back then, right? Like that's where <laughs> I learned about. But it's like, no, really, what does that mean, right? Because I think once you have a little bit more of a goal oriented, trying to also figure out what this person is trying to do, I think the possibilities are, are really, really kind of endless. The future of work is here at Automatic. The people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Join a team of diverse global perspectives. Create the work environment and schedule that empowers you to perform at your very best. At Automatic, what matters is the work you produce, not how many hours you put in. Work from anywhere you choose. There are automatications working right now in 79 countries around the globe. The intellectual and cultural diversity that results is critical to the company's success. Automatic believes in constant learning and offers mentorship and personal coaching to support your growth. As a small company with a huge footprint, Automatic offers you the chance to have an impact and make a difference. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check the latest job listings. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. I love that story of yours. And, and I love just kind of like that happiness in the moment, because I would probably say a lot of what you see around technology, specifically on the employment side, it's sort of like, I want to be X, Y, Z in the, this many years. Like, is that something that you actively went for? Or was it more or less something that came along just from the work that you put in? It's all come along from the work that I've put in. And it, like, even up to now. And, you know, I've done talks within Google on, you know, promotion process and how do you get promoted? And one of the things that I consistently say mm. to people is do not optimize for pro. Like, of course, think about promotion. I'm not sure. saying do not think about it, but do not optimize for it because that's just how I operate. And, you know, there's an interesting story. Someone asked me recently on Twitter, someone asked me for advice on which company to join. They had two offers and one was about to IPO and the other one they had some, and I was like, I'm the wrong person to ask. I have no idea. <laughs> like, I don't know what, what do you like better? Which product do you like better? Which people do you like better? But because yeah. the question was around the finances of it and long-term right. career scope, it was just like, it hates not the wrong approach because that's their approach, but it's sure. not, I am not the right person to answer that question. Right. So, you know, you talked about starting out in India and, and not sort of doing what your family and friends expected you to do. How would you say your identities played a part in terms of how you approach management or at least your design ethos? It's throughout. I think I have held on to whatever that might be. I mean, I'm not even the most Indian person. I don't even, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what this means, but I was just thinking about how I have leaned into when I say that I say that because my Indian friends here like I don't celebrate all the holidays because my family didn't do that growing up and all of that right but what I mean by that is that I have always held on to who I am 
And if that makes me different and that makes people uncomfortable, that's okay. That's on them. That's not on me. An example of that is my portfolio when I applied to grad schools, it was like very much just me. It was very Indian, but not in a, you know, because sometimes you see this whole fetishized version of that. It wasn't that. It was just an Indian doing design. So it looks like Indian Mm. design, right? And People gave me advice and said that I should westernize it a little bit since I'm applying to schools in Mm. the U.S., but I didn't need to. And it was what it was and it worked. And throughout my school or schooling here, I stayed very true to my style. I was hired. So distinct, the place where I was hired, I joined them because they do such gorgeous graphic design, but it's very, very modern. It's very Bauhaus philosophy. Mm. The owner comes from Belgium. That's his background. I was so surprised that he gave me a job because my portfolio was the opposite of how their work looks. But I could really see that he gave me a job because it was different and they wanted to bring in someone with a different style. And, you know, it just worked better for some clients. So that's just an example. And same at Google. I was at Yahoo before Google. Same at Yahoo. I've just felt that I have always stayed true to who I am. And when I design, it looks like an Indian person is designing it because that's just who I am, right? And that's just, I don't know how to do it any other way. That's the problem. (laughs) That's just who I am. And it's kind of always worked in my favor. So at least now, looking back, I can say with somewhat confidence that it's okay to lean into your differences instead of trying to blend in. Especially now when I'm reviewing portfolios, whenever anyone stands out, it's most probably because of their cultural background. Just because, Mm. you know, they have some different experiences that is not mainstream and their portfolio kind of reflects that. I always pause on those and spend a lot of time on those. So leaning into your differences, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah. So I think this is great because I I think part of the things that I'm, I'm picking out here is that you've made a pivot yourself, right? You're a female in leadership. And on top of that, too, when it comes to looking at portfolios, as you mentioned, it's really about people staying true to themselves, right? And so for folks that don't quite fit the mold, like what is your general kind of advice? And also, like, why do you find that value? It's valuable because it seems like why would you keep hiring the same kind of person? Like it's, you know, I already have five of those portfolios why would I hire Mm. like another five it's just not additive right how are you going to innovate if it's not additive to the style that your team has right now so it's very very valuable there so thank you so much for framing and really kind of providing us how you approach that work and kind of what you look for in prospects so enough about the work what do you do to maintain balance right I mean you're a very busy person LA starting to open up again. What does balance for you look like? I am smiling right now. I know people cannot see me, but <laughs> you know, I'm smiling because I'm actually somehow really good at this. <laughs> I think it might be because I'm very fortunate. Very honestly, I'm very fortunate yeah. to be in a position where I'm married. I have two dogs. I don't have kids. So I have very little in terms of responsibilities. Like mm-hmm. I really only need to take care of myself, right? My husband takes care of me and sometimes or of himself and sometimes of me, right? Like he'll make breakfast if I have an early morning meeting. So I'm very fortunate there that I don't have, I have work and then the rest of the time I can do whatever I want. I sure. know not everyone is in that position. So I'm just acknowledging my privilege there, right? But 
what do I do? I have a lot of different things that I do on the side because I find it super important to make time for things. Like you have to kind of just do activities that you like to make sure that you're not working all the time. So as an example, I do photography. At some point, I was even doing it twice every week and I've stopped doing that now because it kind of meant I was working seven days a week, right? If I'm doing If I'm working at Google five days a week and then doing photography Saturday and Sunday is just wasn't working out. I do dance. So I take Indian classical dance classes from a teacher in India. I have to make time for that. Yeah, it's super fun. I own or I co-own a pole dance studio here in Los Angeles. I am not super involved in taking care of it. I have to say I'm so grateful that I have a great partner who does most of the upkeep there. But You know, I have to put in a little bit of work in making sure that that's running properly. So there's that. And then I'm also pretty extroverted and social. So now that things are opening up, I took this week off basically to have brunch. I've been going out every day for brunch. Amazing. That was my vacation. <laughs> Amazing. We're also having we're having a social moment right now as well. Exactly. Exactly. You know how it, my advice here would be to make time no matter what. Because I feel mm. like usually what happens is people are always like, oh, I'm going to do it after this promotion. I'm going to do it after this milestone. Mm. There is always another milestone. Right. There's always something else happening in your life. So if possible, make time. And like I said, I, I am very fortunate. I know people have a lot, many other responsibilities that I probably don't have to deal with. But whatever little you can do, it's always helpful. Yeah. I think really it's about living in the moment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that feels like thematically where this conversation is gone. So I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot here. You have a dance studio. Yes. So what is like Asta's dance curriculum for lack of a better term? How do I become a masterful dancer? Is that even achievable? How yes. can you get me there? <laughs> so if you want so you want to become a masterful pole dancer that's what you're going for oh yes. okay hey, hey yes. let's let's go with it let's go with yes, it yes yes okay <laughs> so pole dance it's there are so many studios out there many in the bay area many opening up to men now there was this whole controversy around should they be women's only but the thing is there are many many kinds of pole dance right like there's yeah. the sexy kind but then there's also the fitness kind and there's more the folksy, they're different kinds. So right. if you work out, you're going to have a very easy time doing pole. If you don't work out, it's still okay. You build your strength. I'm advertising my studio at this point. So it's, just, hey, it's all good. <laughs> Let's do it. Come on. It's just, you know, I think a lot of it is about, it's it's good for men too, but really it's a reason why we opened the studio and it's called Haven, as in a safe haven is because a lot of it is about women finding their femininity again and not feeling like they have to be like men in order to succeed, especially in corporate America, because that can be, I mean, you know, there is this mold of what success looks like and people of color, women, black people usually have to, or LGBTQ plus folks have to feel this pressure to mold themselves in that. And very early on, that was something that I realized that I didn't have to be like a man to succeed. I could just be myself. So that was really like one big reason why I opened Haven. And it's just a place for women to be themselves and get very, very strong. Pole dancing makes you very strong. Amazing. Well, that was great. I'm glad I'm glad you you took me down that path. I did not know it was a pole dancing class. <laughs> but that's great. How how can people learn about it and 
you know, also on top of that, how can folks, you know, get in touch, follow you, sort of see some of the stuff you do? Because I know you also write on That's your website, right. many different mm-hmm. thoughts. So maybe tell us how folks can can follow up with you. I need to get better about consolidating my username and stuff everywhere. But I think the easiest way to get in touch would be on Twitter. I am usually pretty responsive on DMs. What I mean by that is when I see them, I respond to them. I look at them at least like once a week or so. Uh, So my username on there as the pasta, I'm guessing it'll be somewhere in the notes or something where people can probably find it. And then my website and is linked off of my Twitter. It's just my full name, astagor at .com. And that's where you'll find more about the Pole Studio, more of my writing in there, and more about just my values as, as a UX lead. Awesome. So I've got one last question. What is a piece of advice that you'd want to leave for designers, regardless of where they're at in their career? I would say one practice that has helped me a lot as a designer and as a lead now, and something that I believe everyone should do is practice divergent thinking. So maybe, you know, if you're not familiar with it, maybe look that up. But the most simple way of saying that is it's accepting and recognizing that there are more than there is more than one way to solve a problem. I feel like it, it just mm. internalizing that message helps you be more inclusive. It helps you be more creative. It helps you create more space. It helps you not argue with people because you realize it's not right and wrong. There are many, many right answers to most questions. Mm. And it is a practice. It is just like any other practice. It's not a, it's not something that you can just decide that you're going to be a divergent thinker now. You kind of have to practice it every day. What I mean by that is, and you know, you can Google it and many exercises will come up, but something small like, If I have a jar, what are 10 different ways in which I could use a jar? And just think about the 10 different ways and that's it. You're done. And do something else the next day. Just take one household object. Even if you just do that, you're set for like a couple of years, right? So divergent thinking, such a great practice for being more creative and just being a more inclusive person overall. That is great advice. And again, thank you, Asta. This is a really fun recording And it was great to learn more about you, your dance studio, and just really practical and applicable knowledge to kind of bring into our lives. So again, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It was so great to talk to you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening. Ratings and reviews help this podcast tremendously. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll return the favor by giving you a shout out on the show and on Instagram. If you want to know a little bit of how that might sound, I've got a few to read out for you right now. Cimena Love One says, great podcast, looking forward to more. And Blair with 9B says, a great podcast that provides insights from the industry, really enjoy the episode so far, and the interview format creates both great dynamic and knowledge for each episode. I appreciate the love. And I can't wait to share more reviews on the upcoming episodes. Don't forget to submit yours today.